uh, well, as we jump into the Psalms, we've been studying the Psalms the last three summers now. This is our, our beginning of our fourth summer through the Psalms. Uh, we've, we've, we've begun the month of June, the last couple of years, outside. Now, some of you guys might come here this morning asking why, especially when there's a building right behind us that has really good working air conditioning. Uh, we can control it all. Uh, and so why would we meet outdoors? I, I want you to know there, there's a reason why I, I, we really want to meet outside, at least through the month of June, uh, why I love to meet outside. Here's, here's the reason that I always love to kind of kick off the summer meeting in June. It's not just because it's gorgeous out and I love just being outside, but, but as we celebrated uh, communion this morning, one of those things, one of the ordinances or the reason for that ordinance is, is to remember uh, throughout Scripture, uh, God is constantly calling his people to remember, to remember certain things that are happening in, in the life of his people. And so they set up uh, memorials or monuments or whatever to remind them of God's faithfulness, of his goodness. And one of the things that I've found over the past couple of years that meeting outdoors reminds us of is the beauty and the goodness and the necessity of the church. If you remember two years ago, I think we all remember two years ago. COVID began, it shut the church down for 13 weeks. We met online. And so from March to the end of May, we all met, not in person, we met virtually over a screen. And so for 13 weeks, we did not see one another. And, and there was, throughout those 13 weeks, I remember hearing from so many of you, like there's this longing to see one another, this longing to be with one another. As thankful as we were for uh, to, to have virtual uh, way to, to meet, it still was no replacement for the actual physical gathering of God's people. And so our very first Sunday back together after 13 weeks, we met outdoors up at our, up at our acres just north of the church here. And I remember that Sunday so vividly because it's like, it's like a family reunion. It's like we had seen each other for so long and there was just a sweetness to kind of gathering back and and so we actually, for 2020, met outdoors from June all the way to the end of September. Well, last year we said, you know, let's kick off June again, outdoors, again, to remind us. This is what it does for me. It reminds me of that time when we finally got back together once again to, to show that the beauty of the church that we need to meet together. I think there's a lot of beauty that comes from this in the sense that uh, the church is not that brick and mortar building right behind us. That is not the church. That's a building. It's a campus right here. This is the church. And so wherever we are, wherever we gather, that's where the church is. And so I think this is a good way just to, again, recenter us, remind us of what the church is and the necessity for why we need one another. And so if you're asking, why are we meeting outdoors? That's why. That's the reason. And, and so this morning, we're going we're gonna to gather as a church. We're worshiping as the church outdoors. We're lifting up our voices. And now what we want to do is sit underneath the authority and the weight of God's word as, as it shapes us and transforms us as we once again take the summer and walk through the next set of psalms. And so here we are, once again, fourth year, fourth summer, journeying through the psalms. A few years ago, I said that one of my goals was to preach through the entire Psalter, right? All 150 psalms. And, and I said, this is going to take us about 11 to 12 years uh, to do. So we're four in. All right, so here we go, Psalm 38. And so the last four years, we've committed our summer months to this study, just going through one psalm a week. Now, again, why have we committed to this? We've committed this because the, the Psalter is a remarkable book. And, and, and the book of Psalms is a, is a book. Don't think of the Psalms as individual units. The Psalms, uh, though written over the course of hundreds of years and by several different authors, still tell 
one overarching story. The Psalms are telling a story of God's love, of God's faithfulness, of God's redemption of a broken and fallen people. The Psalms, through beautifully poetic language, reveal the character and the nature of God. The Psalms are pointing to the person of Jesus Christ as the redeemer of mankind, as the true king who reigns forever and ever. The Psalms, as we read through them and study them, they lead us and they teach us how to worship. They lead us and teach us how to pray. The Psalms, as James Hamilton says in his commentary, are true history, fulfilled prophecy, and enduring praise. The book of Psalms is a school of prayer. It's a fountain of truth and a revelation of God himself. But then he says this, he says, we will not master this book, but oh, that it might master us, becoming the pulse to which our hearts beat and the soil in which our, which our souls take root. Now he's right to say that we will never actually fully master this book. And here's why. We need to do just a quick review because it's been a year since we've been in the Psalms. And so quick review. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the lenses by which we read the rest of the Psalter. So in Psalm 1, which we tackled four years ago now, begins by saying this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, on his law, he meditates day and night. And so we saw from Psalm 1, right here in this opening, this call from God to what the psalmist calls the blessed life. Meaning, meaning the psalms open up by saying, if you want to prosper, if you want to be fruitful, if you want to find meaningful, sustaining, everlasting joy, if you want to flourish and experience life as God has intended it to be, then the psalmist calls you, as God writes to the psalmist, to center your life, root your life, he says, in God's word, in the law of God, without wavering, meaning day and night, that this is where our mind, this is where our heart is centered. Jesus, centuries later, said something very similar to Psalm 1 in Matthew 7, when he said that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on the house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Well, what is the rock? What's Jesus referring to? Well, he's referring to God's law, his word, specifically in Matthew 7, Jesus' teaching. And so go back to what James Hamilton says. Why will we never fully master this book, the Psalter? Well, it's because we, we should read Psalm 1 and instantly be like, I can't do that completely and perfectly because I'm sinful, because I don't always center my life on the teachings of God's word. There's so often where we drift, where we do our own thing, where we forget what it says, where we neglect what it says. And so Psalm 1 calls us to the way God has intended for us to, to live, but we should look at that and say, we're going to fall short, which is why we need then Psalm 2. See, the second psalm directs our attention to the eternal Son of God, the King of kings who will reign forever, the one who will make us right and restore us once again with our God. You see, Psalm 2 points us to Jesus. In verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 2, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. It's speaking of all nations coming and being brought to the Son, that he will reign and rule over them. 
that we find our refuge in this great eternal king, as verse 12 would say, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is pointing outside of itself and saying there's coming a redeemer who will make us right. See, we need the Psalms for they remind us of the glory of God. We need the Psalms because they teach us the way which leads to human flourishing. We need the Psalms because they point us to our only hope as sinful creatures, which is Christ. The Psalms can be said are, 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 are a type of worship manual for God's people. How and why do we praise him? How do we approach this great God of all creation? How do we look to and rest in him in times of trial and troubles? How do we confess? How do we handle our own sinfulness? We need the Psalms. And so as we read through and study the Psalms, we're being invited actually into a people's relationship with their God. We're learning from them. The Psalms that we've gone through for the most part over the last three summers have been largely written by David. Of the 150 Psalms, David wrote 75 of them. We're seeing from, from David his relationship with his God and how, how that relationship was being developed through the seasons of his own life, of his own struggles, of his own shortcomings. So how does David handle adversity and trial and conflict? How is David worshiping his great God? How does he delight in him? And, and why does he delight in his God? What guides David's prayers? What's he do when he falls short, when he sins? These are what we see through the Psalms and what we've been through over the last three summers. And so let's kick off Psalm 38 as we're going to learn here from David once again of David's mistakes, of his sin, and his approach to a holy God when the stench of his sin is all around him. David here in Psalm 38, as you heard it read, it followed along as experiencing the destructiveness of sin and the, the absolute havoc that it produces, but also as, as we see through the, the last part of this psalm, we begin to see the help that he receives as he waits patiently on the Lord for his salvation. And so as we, as we jump into Psalm 38, take a look with me, if you have it open, at the superscription. Superscription is, is those words found right before verse 1, for it says it's a psalm of David for the memorial offering. Other translations might say to bring remembrance. So David wrote this psalm to remind him of something. And so I think this psalm is, is a way to remind us really of two things. It's reminding us of the, the utter destructiveness of our sin. And it's reminding us of the abundant mercy of God. The utter destructiveness of our sin and the abundant mercy of God. And that's how I've broken down this psalm this morning. Two reminders. Two things to be remembered. So let's go through number one. The utter destructiveness of sin. Now, the goal today here is we're going to kind of just go verse by verse through a majority of this. So let's just follow along. Verse one, what's he say? He says, oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, when, when we read of this psalm, we read that verse, when we think of the destructiveness of our sin, we oftentimes tend to think that the most devastating consequences of our sin is what it does to our own lives and what it does to the lives of others. And though it's true that, that our sin creates this massive ripple effect that, that, that impacts and affects others, what do we actually first learn here in verse 1? We learn from David that the actual most devastating consequence of our sin 
is that it incurs God's anger and God's wrath. That's what our sin has brought about. God's anger and God's wrath. This is what we talked about even last week in Mark 9. This is such a great psalm to begin after what we dealt with last week in Mark 9. When Jesus discusses and talks and teaches about the seriousness of sin. And that sin is serious and therefore must be met with this serious response. See, in Mark 9, Jesus uses extreme language to to emphasize the, the seriousness of sin. So he says, if your hand, if your foot, if your eye causes you to sin then or tempts you toward sin, he says, cut it off. Pluck it out. Why? Because to live in unrepentant sin is to incur God's wrath. Ultimately, as Mark 9 talked about, as it's expressed in an eternal hell. That's what Jesus talked about in Mark 9. That sin is not something to be taken lightly. God does not treat sin lightly. Paul says in Romans 11, he says, note the kindness and the severity of God. As, As remarkable the love of God is, it's as it says it's as crazy as what God's wrath towards sin is. As as deep as the love of God goes, that's how much he hates sin. And so we love to camp out in the love of God. We love that, and that feels good. And, and praise God for his his love that, that we can't we can't even write as much about as how loving God is, but we so often neglect the wrath that God has towards sin. See, sin is our rebellion against a holy God. It's our rejection of a holy God, our treason against a holy God, and that all of us stand guilty before a holy God. David understands this. He understands that his sin is pure wickedness. He understands that his sin is going to bring consequences. That's what we see in verse 2. He says, for your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. David's feeling the the piercing conviction that comes through the Holy Spirit. David's feeling the weightiness and and the guilt of his sin, the heaviness of it. And he's asking God in verse 1, he says, my sin is before you. It's before me. And he says, rebuke me, discipline me. Yes, but he's saying, discipline me as a loving father disciplines his child. Don't let your, your unyielding anger and wrath be completely upon me. See, as parents, we we oftentimes, we know the difference between disciplining our children out of love and disciplining them in anger. There's a difference between the two. And oftentimes, I've had to confess to my kids that dad disciplined or reacted in anger, not out of love. But when our discipline is in love, it's it's for their good. When we discipline out of anger and wrath, it's, it's punitive. It's to punish. And so David's saying... Don't discipline me. Don't rebuke me in your anger or in your wrath. Discipline me as a loving father would discipline his child. See, David here is resting in the truth that he is God's child. And because of of that, that God's wrath is no longer actually fully directed toward him. And that even here, we, we begin to see, as it points outside of itself, the beauty and the glory of the cross, where God's wrath and where God's anger was satisfied through Jesus's death and sacrifice for our sins. See, see, for those of us who are believers in Christ, any discipline that God uh, brings upon you is not punitive. It is not his punishment. Why? Because Christ took the punishment. We are not under wrath. We are not under his anger for our sin. We're under grace. 
So, so David even knows, though, that even though his sin has, has, has brought these consequences, he knows that God's going to discipline him out of love. That's what he's calling for. He knows God will discipline him, but he's reminding himself even in this prayer that this discipline comes out of God's love because he's his child. This is what the author of Hebrews says about God, that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. We need to remember this. We need to remember first that, that our sin is ultimately an offense, a grievous offense against a holy God, and that without Christ, without Jesus, we bear. You take Jesus out of the picture. We bear fully upon ourselves God's wrath for our sin. And what that sin will bring about. But through Jesus and because of Jesus, we no longer bear the weight of God's wrath and praise God for that. Yet painfully, painfully though, this psalm continues and we begin to still see though the devastation and the consequences that sin leaves in its wake. Though we may not be under God's wrath, our sin still brings consequences. And that's what David's feeling here. It leaves, it leaves things in its wake. We're all Midwesterners here, right? Like we know that tornado season begins every spring and it carries on throughout the summer months. And, and maybe we've seen footage over the years of what, what tornado does to a town. And, and oftentimes after a tornado has gone through it, you can look at the bird's eye view and you can actually follow and see the path that that tornado took as it ripped through homes and ripped through businesses. So similarly here, the next 10 verses really trace that destructive path that sin leaves in its wake. In verses 3 and verse 7, we see this phrase, the same phrase, that there is no soundness in my flesh. David's not experiencing and walking in the peace of God. His, his physical frame is, is being broken and crushed by his sin. So what we see here in those verses is, is that, that sin weakens us. It disrupts us physically. Right? Verse 3, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. Verse 4, like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Verse 5, my wounds stink and fester. Verse 6, I am utterly bowed down. All day I go about mourning. Verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. What image is coming into your mind right now, into your mind's eye of, of David, when you hear him say these words? What's he looking like to you? And this is a man who, who can barely stand. This is a man not living in health and vitality. Most likely, this is a man who's not eating. He's not sleeping well. He, if you see him, like, man, he looks like death. This is sin's effect on us physically. But we also see through the psalm that sin affects us spiritually as well. In verse 9, it says David is longing. He says, I'm longing and sighing before the Lord. For those of you here who have walked through intense seasons of grief, you understand maybe what that means, that painful sigh, that guttural sigh. Like, like it hurts from deep within your bones. You feel depleted. You feel empty. You feel drained. And so there's this painful sigh. In verse 10, he says, my heart throbs. He's feeling like a, a tightness in his chest. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. See, we see that what sin does to us is it robs us of, of joy. His heart hurts. There's no joy in his eyes, only pain and sorrow. 
He has no strength or drive to do anything. He's deeply discouraged here, if not depressed because of sin's consequences that he's brought about in his own life. So sin affects us physically, it affects us spiritually, but we also see here that sin wreaks havoc on even just personal relationships. Look at verse 11. He says, my friends and companions, they stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. See, our sin affects our, even our relationships. Why is that? Well, well, what do we see happen in Genesis 3 when sin enters into God's good world through Adam and Eve? The moment that they disobey, they feel shame, they feel guilt, they feel embarrassment, and they run. They run from one another. They run from God. They cover themselves with fig leaves. And so right away you see that there's, there's now distance between the two of them. Uh, when God calls for them in the garden, they, they run and hide from him. And so now all of a sudden their sin has brought distance between them and their God. And sin brings shame and brings guilt. And so from that we, we run and we hide so often from one another. Sin never leads us toward life and vitality, but rather a life of shambles. And so, so because of that, sin begins to disrupt relationships. Unfortunately, I've, I've walked through so many people, brothers in, in, in our own church who have, have gone through seasons of intense pain because of their sin. And, and, and Galatians calls us as, as the church to say, listen, if anybody's caught up in sin, we're, we're not to run from them. We're not to uh, be, be aloof from them. We are to bear with them and help restore them. But as we've walked through even those seasons with, with other brothers and sisters in, in the life of our church that have been caught up in sin, that, that even in those moments of, of seeking to restore the relationship with them, the, the relationship is still affected by the sin. It's not the same as what it was before their sin was found out. This is just what sin does. So, so as the church, we shouldn't run from those who are caught in sin. We want to run to them and embrace them. But, but what we're seeing here in the psalm is that even as we're embracing them, the, the relationship is affected by that. That's what sin does. It causes a, a divide, a chasm between us and one another. But we also see in verse 12 that sin emboldens even our enemies. In our weakened state, the enemy will come to steal and kill and destroy us. I mean, these are just the devastating consequences of sin, the utter destructiveness of sin. Can we begin to even better understand why Jesus spoke with such radical language last week as we walked through Mark 9? Cut the hand off, right? Cut the foot off. Pluck the eye out if it's tempting you towards sin because you don't want to go through this. It's better to do without a hand or a foot or an eye, to do spiritually without something than to suffer the devastating consequences that sin brings about. we got to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of this. But we also need to be reminded, secondly, as the psalm ends, of God's abundant mercy. God's abundant mercy. This is what the last half of this psalm leads to. We see in David's response to his sin that, that he knows God is, is merciful. He's looking to the mercy of God. In verses 13 and 14, he says this, that I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. David is saying in those few verses, he's saying, I can't give an excuse for my sin. I'm not trying to justify it. He's saying, literally, I'm guilty. See, when we sin, what we do when we're sinning, 
is we're chasing after false gods. That's what sin is. It's, it's, it's us chasing after false idols. It's us exchanging uh, the creator for something that's created. So it's us looking at God saying, you're not enough. I need this. That's what sin is. It's we're looking to something created to give us this meaning and purpose rather than looking to the one who's created it all. And so when we worship false gods, false idols that cannot speak, cannot make sense of our life, cannot give purpose or meaning to anything of who we are, they cannot hear, they can do nothing for us. But when we worship them, when we chase after them, we become them. There's a common phrase that's used that we become what we worship. We become what we worship. And so if we worship Jesus, we're becoming more like Jesus. But if we worship false gods, we're becoming more like them. And I believe that's what David's talking about here. He's in essence saying, I've worshipped false gods. I've chased after false idols. I've chased after sin. They can do nothing for me. And now I'm becoming like them. I cannot speak. I cannot hear. And because of that, he's saying, I'm caught red-handed. I can't give any justification for my actions. I'm guilty. You see, the first step toward finding freedom and forgiveness and mercy is to admit and accept that you're guilty. Most people struggle to get through that first step because we don't like to admit our guilt. We don't like to admit our depravity. We don't like to accept that apart from Christ, we are absolutely hopeless and helpless. So often when confronted with our own sin, we respond with something as, as, as like, well, if, if I wouldn't have done that if, fill in the blank, if they wouldn't have provoked me, if the circumstance was different, I wouldn't have done what I did. If they would have responded differently, I wouldn't have responded the way I did. See, do you hear even in those responses, that blame shifting? It's, it's so often in our flesh, when confronted with our sin, rather than saying, I'm guilty and I need Christ, we, we, we sometimes in our flesh want to say, it's, it's never really me, it's external, right? So change the environment and I won't sin anymore. That's oftentimes the excuse we want to give when really our response should be, I sinned because, because I'm a sinner in need of grace. I sin because I'm guilty and my heart wants sin so often. I'm prone to wander. I need God's grace. I have no excuse to give. See, the former excuses given reveal that the remedy to sin so often in our minds is just a change in environment change the people around me, change how they respond, change my circumstances, and then I won't sin. But what do we see from David as the true remedy for sin? Verse 15, he says, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you. It's you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. I love that last line. It's you who will answer. You see, in verse 14, David says, I don't have an answer to give. He, he's standing before a holy God speechless. I have no excuse to give for my sin. I'm guilty. I've done it. I can't give any, I can't say anything. And here we are in verse 15 says, but I know who can give an answer for me. See, right here again is the beauty of the gospel. Where sin condemns, where it silences us because of our guilt, Jesus speaks in the gap and says, forgive it. Jesus speaks in the gap and says, the debt is paid full. We can't give an answer. Jesus does. 
where enemies or even the great enemy hurl accusations our way, like what we see in verse 12 and even in verse 16, our hope is found in the truth that if God is for us, who can be against us, Romans 8 would say. And so because of the abundant mercy of God, our response then, as we see, is confession and repentance. Verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. He's not sorry because he got caught. He's not sorry because he got found out. There's there's a godly sorrow here in this where he's saying, I have offended a holy God. And that's what true sorrow is. It's not, well, I just want to make sure I fix things to get things better so my life's easier. It's saying, no, I'm repenting. I'm sorrowful because I've offended a holy God. And I want that relationship restored. So he says, I confess. Here's who I am. I'm sorrowful for my sin. See, whereas the first step toward finding freedom and forgiveness and mercy is the admittance of guilt, the second step then is confession and repentance. We confess our sins. We turn from our sins toward the blessed life as outlined in Psalm 1. We seek by God's grace to do what's good and right, knowing that it will bring scorn and ridicule even from a sinful world. That's how he begins to close this psalm out. See, you see a turning in David's life. I've sinned. I'm guilty. And so I'm turning And now that's going to bring scorn and ridicule from a a world that's like, what are you doing? That's verse 20. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. And it's really then in verses 21 and 22 that begin to showcase the abundant mercy of God, even in the midst of everyone abandoning us or leaving us. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. As I close here, think back to what David said in verse 5 used this, this incredible language. He said, my, my wounds stink and fester. Like his sin reeked. What does a skunk do to defend itself? Right? Sprays its attackers with this horribly smelling odor. Like the smell itself is repulsive. And, and so because of David's sin in his life, his wounds stunk and they festered. And David's own friends, his family, they stood at a distance from him. Those who were closest to him abandoned him. It's what sin does. It's smelly, it's gross, it's repulsive. But what's David's request in verse 21? Don't be far from me. As David looked forward and we look back to the cross, it's it's where at the cross that we see the loving embrace of Jesus for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5 reads that, that Jesus became sin for us, that he took on himself the stench of sin. He took upon himself the wrath of God that sin brought about, that he became The punishment, he became the sacrifice. Why? So that we could take upon ourselves through faith in Christ, right? His righteousness. That through faith in Jesus, we become the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ. He takes upon himself our our sin, the disgustingness of it, and pays the penalty for it. That's the mercy of God, the abundant mercy of God. Do you believe this? We've all experienced the consequences of sin. The only hope we have is the one David acts upon in this psalm. To admit it, to confess it, to repent, to rest in God's mercy and grace. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. A people in need. God, we say that every week. And so my prayer, though, is that we would would understand it, that we believe that, that we truly are in need, that we need God's mercy. We need your grace. We need the cross. We need Jesus. God, may we be a people who never live in the shadows, 
that never live hiding our sin, our vulnerability from one another, but that we live openly and honestly because we grasp and understand that all of us are in need of, of your grace. So God, help us. Help us to see and be reminded of how destructive our sin is. It takes, it takes serious to, the destructiveness of our sin, but at the same time, as we even talk about in communion, that we don't remain in our guilt and shame, but, but that Christ has taken that upon himself, and so we live in celebration of your mercy for us. So God, may we sing and, and, and revel in your grace, your mercy, your salvation, for our good, for your glory. Hear the songs of your saints sung this morning. May we confess, repent for your name. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.